Morning. My name is Chad, and I get to be your pastor today. I'm very excited. Welcome everybody here in person. Welcome if you're watching online. Maybe it's later this week. You're driving after work, whatever you're listening. We know that the Lord can meet you here this morning. Excited. Uh, every Tuesday, we sit in this room as a staff, and we pray for you. And we ask the Lord, what's on your heart? How can we pray for them? How can we pray for our church? The second thing we do is something called benedictions. And that word just means a good word. And we look for something in another person on staff to say, hey, I noticed this in the way you were serving or the kind of person you are. And so this morning, God just brought it to the forefront. I wanted to do a benediction in front of you for our worship team, don't they do an amazing job bringing us into the presence of the Lord? Amen. Yeah, so thankful for Pastor Daniel and his team and everyone who uses their phenomenal gifts, including all of those who are unseen behind the scenes in the tech, running the cameras, making everything beautiful to happen online, all that kind of stuff. So, so thankful. Just wanted to uh, give that good word. Um, about three weeks ago, a little more than three weeks ago, I felt a prompting from the Lord and it was uncomfortable. But I felt like he was asking me to cut the cord from my connection to social media and constant news to literally pull the IV out of my arm that I was so drawn to have to see everything that was happening at every moment that dealt with the election, that dealt with COVID, all of it. And I resisted so much. Um, but then I said, okay, Lord, I'm doing it. And apart from one social media connection, which is Facebook, which is the one that we use as a church to talk to each other. And then I get to put pictures of my kids that they don't want me putting them on. Um, <clears throat> that's the only thing I've stayed connected to, but even that is very rare, maybe once a week. And I'm not trying to say anything that you need to do. I just wanted to tell you what the Lord did in me. And wow, can I tell you how my heart has changed? It's been unbelievable what the Lord has done. And I am no less informed. People make sure of that. Right? We all want to tell. You'll find out what's going on. So I know what happened this week, all those things. Um, and I'm no less invested in praying for our country, praying for our leaders, as Scripture asks us to do. I'm doing that. But I am much more focused on my wife, my family. And I feel like almost as if, you know, in the old days when we had to actually turn the knobs for the radios and it was static, static, static. I got it clear, crystal clear, the rabbit ears on the TV tuned in. I feel a clarity that I haven't felt before. Now, every once in a while, I'll just say, oh, I'm going to pop over there to a news site or whatever, and I'm going to check and see what's going on. And it feels like a black hole that is going to suck me in. And I feel the angst in my heart again. And I'm like, no, pull them back away, Lord. And the reason I want to say that, and why do I start that with that this morning before we jump into the gospel of Luke and I think the Lord has made clear to me that no matter what is happening in the world, no matter which room I find myself in, Jesus is still the most important person in that room and in that setting, no matter what. And we believe here that Jesus is 
the most important person in the room and that he's not supposed to be left in this room when you leave. He actually follows you home. I don't know if you knew that. He's in your bedroom. He's in your kitchen. He's at school with you. He's at work. He's in every conversation. He is right there listening. And how you interact with him has everything to do with how you take in that news, which you will inevitably hear about and feel. And the thing I started to realize was that even if, even if it gets to where it all hits the fan and it's the worst thing ever, and we are in the darkest of dark times, like we've seen happen in other countries, in Europe and different places over the centuries, even if our mission to proclaim Christ and his gospel doesn't change at all. And if anything, like if it gets where it's like, it's really bad now though, it's really bad now then, you know what that does for me and my heart and my following of Jesus? It means I say, well, then we really need to talk about Jesus now. We really need to continue focusing on him. And what I've realized is that sometimes you need to break something to see and to hear and to understand what the Lord is doing. And so we're in Luke's gospel. And today you're gonna see two people, two characters who believe it or not, have the same decision that you have when they're interacting with their world. The world they lived in, just as corrupt, probably more so. They were living under foreign occupation. Rome was there. People were killed, taken away for whatever. They didn't own anything. It was all in Rome's hands. And they had a decision. What was that decision? What was the question that they had to ask of themselves every day? It's the same one you have to face even with everything that is going on in the world. And this is the question. What do I do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus in this world that we live in? This complicated, messy, unjust, corrupt, sinful world. Jesus is still the most important subject, person, word, activity, thought, action, you name it. And by his spirit, I'm praying that we'll see that again today. Before we jump into that, will you pray with me? Lord, um, I still feel that draw. And Lord, to be anxious and to worry and to say, yes, but, but Lord, I know from your word and from your spirit that it's still the most important question. What do I do with Jesus? How am I responding to him today? And I ask today as we open your word uh, that you've orchestrated and put together in such a way that it would go after us, travel across time and pursue our hearts today. God, would you bring that question above every other question we have in our mind right now, every other fear and anxiety, Lord, we actively right now, just in our minds, maybe in the whisper of our breath, say, here it is, Lord, you can have all of this stuff, at least for right now. So I wanna hear you. Would you speak, Lord? Would you allow us to see you, to hear your voice? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a copy of God's word, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we're going to jump in. I'm going to show you these two people who have the same decision you have today. Here we go. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was going to this Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment 
also known as a really expensive bottle of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. That's a lot of tears. And wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, what do we know about the Pharisees and Jesus thus far? And even if you haven't been with us, let me just tell you, they don't like him. They don't like him. He is a problem. He is annoying. He is a wrench that has been thrown into their religious engine and it has seized it is holding up and their goal is we have to get you out of our world. You've messed up our system. So Simon, as we know his name eventually because Jesus says it, so we'll go ahead and say it. Simon wants to get Jesus out of the way. And he's asking the question, what do I do with this Jesus guy, this rabbi? He feels this gnaw, this tug in his heart, this wrench in his system that makes him compels him, pushes him to act. He can't pretend he's not there. Jesus is in his way. Jesus has put himself in his path. You will find the same thing happening in you. You cannot ignore him. He will stand in your way. You'll go home, he'll be in the room. You'll try to pretend, no, he isn't. I left him at church. That's where Jesus stays. And you'll say, I'll realize eventually, no, he's actually in the room. He must act. Simon has to do something. So here's what Simon says. Fine, I'll do something. What is the minimum requirement for not being rude to Jesus? What's the least that I can do? What can I do and not get in trouble? How can I get him off of my conscience? So for Simon, this inevitable dilemma Jesus standing in his way and that he must deal with Jesus leads him to this thought and eventual action. I suppose I should invite Jesus for dinner. Fine. I'll invite him over for dinner. Can't ignore him. So there's also a woman at this dinner. And we're going to talk about her a little bit more in a minute, but she's also reached this point where Jesus is in her path and she can't ignore him. She too has been stopped. What will they do? That's what Luke wants you to think. He wants you to ask the question, what will they do with Jesus being all up in their business? This is Luke's goal. It's to get you to ask the question, even with all that's going on out there, as important as it may be, to ask the question, what should we do with Jesus? Now, some are gonna take a shortcut. And Simon is going to show you what that looks like. He decides to offer a proper, hospitable banquet. This is what you do back then. This is, and it's a public dinner, which is weird. We don't do these, but a public dinner, there would be important people, Jesus, Simon, his buddies. They would sit around a table and eat, and they would open the doors for people to come in, not to eat, but to stand on the edge of the room and to listen to the conversation. We don't do that, do we? That'd be weird. Like you have a dinner at your house, you have people over and there's like 20 people standing behind you. We're just here to listen. 
doesn't happen, does it? But back then, it's a normal thing. It was a way for the people to learn, to hear what important people were saying. And so if you wondered, what's the woman doing in there anyway? How did she get into this dinner? She's allowed to be there. She's allowed to stand in the back. And so he's there and he's doing the right thing. Kind of the, if you think about people coming to your house, if somebody comes to your house in the winter, you know them, you open the door, they ring the doorbell, you open the door, they have a coat on, they've got a hat, you stand there and if you open the door and just look at them, you don't say anything. What are they gonna think? Well, this is rude. No, what do we say? We say, come in, come on in. And even if they're not gonna stay for a while, it's like, hey, can I take your coat? Do you wanna sit down? Would I, can I bring you something? Even though sometimes we don't really mean that, do we? You're like, can I get you something? I don't really have anything, but can I get you something? We ask that question and then they sit down and we sit down and we just look at them. No, we ask questions. We say, well, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Like, we don't want to be rude. That's our acceptable kind of custom. Same thing for them. This banquet for Simon is at least I can do this. So this woman, who is she? She doesn't have a name. She's unnamed, very important character. She's described as a woman of the city. She's called a sinner twice in this passage. How'd you like to be described that way? Many scholars believe she's probably a prostitute, probably had lived a pretty bad life. Regardless, she has a bad reputation. And in the middle of this formal gathering, which it's okay for her to stand in the back and to listen, instead, she gets low and starts timidly approaching Jesus. Now, the way they did it, they didn't have tables and chairs. They had a low table where they would lean in with their arms kind of like fanning out. And so their feet would be behind and that was normal for a servant to come and wash the feet. So not weird, this whole thing of what, how she got to his feet. She's not like crawling in between legs under the table. She's in the back and she's, but she's also being very cautious and she breaks something open. She has to respond. She breaks open this jar of perfume, which was worth about two years of salary, of wages. Two years. Think about that. What you might make in two years of working. She says, this is the time to break this open. Her choice to anoint his feet is an act of humility. Usually you anoint the head that was what they did. So she goes to his feet. Why is she doing that? Because she's thinking, maybe if I just wash his feet and anoint his feet, which are already dirty from walking in the street, I won't make him unclean because I am unclean. She's acting in humility. And just imagine this. I mean, I mean like nose, like what, like a tiny drop of perfume. Imagine a whole bottle like your kid gets your perfume from your thing, takes it out and just dumps it all over the room. You're going to be smelling that for weeks, maybe months. You may have to get new furniture. It takes over the room. It's quite the moment. And she notches it up one more level and takes the roof off because she starts crying and she can't stop crying. She's crying so much that it's this mix of perfume and tears and dirt. And so it's making this kind of mud and dirt. And she's like, oh no, it's a big mess. And so she takes her hair down, which is a huge no-no and starts wiping his feet. Now you may say, what's the big deal with having hair down? Well, back then it was unacceptable. And you may say, well, that's stupid. That's just dumb. Why does the Bible have to be this way? Well, 
We have things that we do that we say, you do this, you just don't do this. For example, in a Sunday morning service, if I'm up here speaking or somebody's teaching, it's not usually acceptable for you to stand up and yell at me. Imagine if that happened. It's like, I disagree with you and firing off a couple of curse words. And then I fire off a couple of curse words. I mean, yeah, whatever. Like that wouldn't, everybody would say that is offsides. But did you know you could go to London, England and go to Hyde Park and there are people that are preaching and it is actually acceptable to yell something out to the preacher? They actually stand on ladders and debate philosophical, spiritual things, the existence of God, pain and suffering. You can fire back all you want, acceptable. So all that to say with the whole hair thing, give, cut them a little slack. They had customs, they had things they did that we didn't do. Either way, it's a shock what's happening. The room is aghast. I started thinking about this and I remembered something that happened in when I was in college that was similar. I went to Wheaton College, about 45 minutes west of Chicago. We had chapel three times a week, Christian school. It's not to say that we were actually listening in chapel. Chapel was, had, you had to be there, you'd take an attendance if you got missed chapel. So sometimes people would say, hey, you have more skips than me. Can you sit in my seat for me? And there's people up in the balcony, just mm, check, check, check. So you had to be there. So a lot of times we sat there and you know what we did? Homework. There's like music going on, somebody's preaching, we're catching up, I got a test next, next class. I'm just gonna study. I don't care. Every once in a while, something would happen. Somebody was, was compelling enough as a speaker or whatever. So this guy was speaking. He was okay. It was fine. All of a sudden, this guy, one of my classmates, gets up from the back of the room and starts walking down the middle of the aisle during this guy's message. Well, guess what? All eyes moved from their books and their homework and their last minute studying to, oh, well, this is interesting. What's happening? He walks all the way to the front, wasn't looking for a seat, walks up onto the platform. Everybody's like, oh, chapel is exciting today. <laughs> Takes off his shirt. I'm like, oh, like it's one of those where you're like, should I look away? What's... <laughs> What's happening, gets on his knees, wraps his arms around the speaker's legs and starts crying. Everybody was like, what is happening? And that speaker did a phenomenal job of getting somebody to come and help. But the moment for that young guy, that classmate of mine, whatever was going on in his life, when he heard the word of God, when he was experiencing whatever he was experiencing, he basically said, I can't take one more moment of this life like this. I have to do something. I have to do something. And that's, that's it stuck with me. I don't remember one <laughs> message at Wheaton College in chapel, not one, but I remember that. Why did he do that? Why does she do this? Why did Simon choose the minimum requirement of just holding a little dinner party? Why do we do what we do when it comes to Jesus? That's the question. So before any explanation, you know what's happened so far. Dinner party, Simon inviting him, woman in the back, 
breaks open this perfume. You don't know any explanation yet. You've probably heard stuff over the years, but just for a moment, let it sit and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to tell me today? What do you want to tell me? What do I need to do? There's a lot to process in our world right now. What do I need to do with you? There's another question that popped up in my heart as I was studying. So there was definitely the, you know, how are they responding? Why are they responding the way they are? But then there's this, what do they want from Jesus? What does she want in doing this? Like, what's her goal? What's she desire to have happen? What about Simon? What does he want? You know, in writing, if I study writing and try to do some writing, um, there's a technique that they talk about when you're writing, if you want something that somebody will actually want to read, and if you're writing about a character, you always ask this question first. What does the character want? If they don't want anything, you don't have a story. Because nobody wants to watch somebody walking around who doesn't want anything. Like, hey, if I'm the character in this book, isn't it exciting? No, it's not. What do they want? What is missing in their life? What's this, even they call it a shard of glass from their past. What's this thing that's driving them? What has happened? What do they want? So Simon spills the beans, even though he doesn't know he's spilling the beans about what he wants and what he thinks about this whole situation because he starts stewing and he is thinking, he thinks to himself. But Jesus hears every word. How's that for invasion of your privacy this morning? Whatever you were just thinking about. Playoff game, lunch, when's he going to shut up? He heard it. And he heard that too. All of it. He's right there in your head. And so imagine if Simon is starting to say this, if this man were truly a prophet. And as he says that, Jesus goes, looks him in the eye. The guy's like, what's going on? He finishes his thought. He would know what sort of woman this is. And as he says that, Jesus goes, turns and looks at the woman. What's happening? He's hearing every thought. And so Jesus responds to his thoughts. Verse 40, Jesus answering. Answering what? His thoughts, the question in his head. Jesus answers before it's even on his tongue, says to him, Simon, I got something to say to you which was code back then between scholars and rabbis and those who were learning of, hey, this is going to be a punch. This is going to be something serious. You need to pay attention. Simon, I have something to say to you. And so Simon, he's a learned man. He's a scholar. He's a Pharisee. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. So denarius was a day's wage. So 365 denarii. Denarius, that's how much you'd make in a year. So that gives you an idea of how much. When they and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. You get a call tomorrow. Your bank says, hey, we know you got a mortgage, but guess what? It's canceled. You don't need to pay it. You'd be like, You're a fr who is this? This is not the bank. <laughs> Are you trying to get my information? Like, you know, we would be suspicious. They canceled the debt of both. And this is interesting because when, have you, when was the last time you thought about the person who was your lender, your banker, your mortgage holder, and you thought about loving them? 
which of them will love him more? You mean the banker? Yeah. Which will love him more? Which Jesus has always got like 15 layers. So you know he's going deep. He's going for the heart. Simon answered, okay, fine. If a lender was supposed to love, if a debtor was supposed to love, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt? Jesus says, yeah, you're tracking. You're tracking with me. Every day you and I act out of what's going on in here and what's going on in here. And somebody, if they're a good friend or a spouse or a parent may ask you if you do something that's off. Maybe you burst out in an anger moment and say some things you shouldn't, shouldn't say. My wife has asked me this question for years. We ask it to our kids too. Um, sometimes when I would say something that maybe was just a little, I was upset and angry, you know, like that. And then later it's like, sorry about that. You know, and you want it to be over. And Lisa asks the great question. Why do you think you did that? I'm like, oh, don't ask me that. I don't know. You ever say that? <laughs> I don't know, but you do. There's something motivating everything you do. We have a treadmill in our basement, a little workout area. And you know what I do? You know what motivates me on the treadmill? I watch cooking shows while I'm walking fast on the cooking show. I watch, I'm like, that looks good. I'm pressing on. If I finish this, I can go upstairs and make something to eat. <laughs> now that's simple and that's not like a huge thing, but we're motivated, right? We're motivated by things. Did you know that the most powerful motivators in your life are things that happen with your heart and your soul and things that have to do with eternity, with your love for your creator? Those are the biggest things. So Jesus says, Simon, let's talk about those motivators, those greatest motivators. We know Simon's having his mail read by the creator of the universe. It's one of those consequences of being a creature as he knows us. What is Simon thinking about the woman? What are his thoughts saying about the woman? He thinks she is the worst. She's worse than the dirt scrubbed from the other people sitting at the table. She's a sinner and he thinks he isn't. His motivation for having this dinner I think he's gathering evidence. Evidence for what? To discredit this guy, Jesus, who seems to be pulling off miracles. It seems to be this amazing guy, but I'm not buying it. I got to gather evidence. I got to figure out what, the way he works because this is messing up. Remember the wrench in the engine? Got to get it out. But there's this other part of him. And it's something that happens to us too, where he thinks... I don't even want to think about it, but what if he's the real thing? What if Jesus is the real thing? What about the woman? Why does she do such an extreme thing? What motivated her? What was she thinking? So as I studied the passage this week, most of the commentators said, this isn't the first time she met Jesus. This isn't her first experience with him. In fact, she had something happen with Jesus, some conversation which caused her to say, I am going to my house. I am getting the most valuable thing I have, my most precious possession, and I'm gonna go find Jesus and I'm gonna break it open. I'm gonna waste it on him. It's exactly what she does. Jesus tells us why in this little parable. This little story, the lender 
is Jesus. Your life is on loan. Your debt, insurmountable. Unable to be paid because of sin. Who is the debtor in the story who owes much? The woman. Who is the debtor who owes a little? Simon, but he doesn't know it yet. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is pursuing. Why does she do this? What caused such extravagance? And here it is, the greatest motivator, the power of love and forgiveness. That's what causes people to truly do something. Love and forgiveness drive her. She breaks this jar open, her tears, so many tears washing his feet, which we're gonna see was withheld from him. He should have had that happen when he came into the house. That was the whole, let me take your coat, wash your feet. That's what they did. Let me wash your feet. It didn't happen, but she loves him. She loves him, not in a husband and wife kind of way, but in a creature creator kind of way, in a, I didn't think this was possible to have this burden taken from my life and you have taken it. I love you. I love you. If you want to see somebody truly change, truly change, it will never happen just by behavior. Behavior modification is the worst way to pursue God. Now, what do I mean? Well, Many people experience this. You have a Christian home, religious home, some sort of thing you grew up in and parents are like, all right, this is what we do. This is what we don't do because we're following the Lord. This is what we have to do. And so we're like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do that. That's, that's good. And these are good things. We want to set up these boundaries. There's things that the Lord says we want to follow. But what happens sometimes? That kid grows up leaves house, leaves the house, goes to college, gets a job. And what happens? Cast off these behaviors. I am done with this. Why? Why be done with it? Simple. The power of love and forgiveness has not had its way in their heart. If you're motivated by anything other than love and forgiveness for God, it's not going to work not going to work. You have to have this in your life. True forgiveness, motivating true love. And it hasn't happened yet for Simon. For the woman, yes. Jesus doesn't change people with behavior modification. When Jesus changes you, forgives you, you experience a love that goes far beyond behavior. You want to do it because you love him. You know he loves you. But Simon, he's all about behavior. He's all about rules. He's all about regulations, proper order to keeping the law. Where's the love of God though? It's not there. But Jesus isn't giving up on him. And why do I know that? Because he keeps talking to him. <laughs> he's not doing it just to judge him. He's sitting there explaining and he says, let me go another step deeper. And I love it because in the next few verses, Jesus goes for the spiritual jugular. I'm coming in and I'm coming in hot, Simon. Here we go. Verse 44. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You didn't take my coat. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. You didn't say hello, come on in, welcome. 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. Hey, have a cup of coffee. Sit down. Let's have a conversation. These were just common things they did. Simon slighted the king of kings. I'll do the least amount of work with you, Jesus. Sure, come to my house, but don't expect anything more. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Jesus doesn't gloss over sin, okay? Anybody that tells you that, he's like, oh, it's just all about love. Just, what does he say? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, is Simon any less guilty of sin than the woman? No. But Jesus is kind of playing along with where he is. He doesn't agree yet that he could be a greater person and she's the less person because she's more of a sinner. In God's eyes, we are all fallen and fallen short. And so Simon is no greater of a person. He is just as guilty. But Jesus goes, he who loves little, who forgiven little, loves little. In other words, he says, I'll, I'll, fine, I'll give you that right now. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, and this is Luke's whole point in every story he gives us, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? How can I get him out of my path? What am I supposed to do with him? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love these verses because Jesus is not speaking in parables. There's no mystery. He's just giving it to you straight. He says everything that needs to be said. And he asks Simon the question that he's asking all of us right now, especially with everything that's going on in our world. What's the question? Do you see? Do you see? Simon, do you see this woman? Can you truly see what is happening here? I love these old things. Anybody use one of these things? Remember these? They're horrible. Like you put a coin in and it's like, this is not worth it. But I love that dial at the top. Turn to clear vision. <laughs> oh, like, wish I had one of those on my head. Can you see? Can you truly see? Is your eyesight clearing up? Or are you still blind? Do you understand? And I think, Simon, it would be fair to think about, see what about her? Yeah, I see her. At first it is, do you see this woman? Just who she is. But as he speaks, it becomes clear that he means so much more than that. Can you see me? The way she sees me. She knows who I am. She's responding to love and forgiveness. She knows that I'm her only chance. She gets it that the only way to fix that deep, dark hole that we all possess in our hearts is to worship me. Now, Simon's having dinner with Jesus. It's a good thing. He's asking Jesus questions. He's not talking to him. It's kind of like prayer. He's respecting Jesus somewhat. He's in the game. He's not outright rejecting God, but he is also keeping him at just the right distance so that he won't get too much into his world. But the woman, she has received forgiveness from God and her response is love. In return, she experiences God's love. So the question is an invitation to all of us to see 
Jesus. Even though Jesus says, you, you may think, it's just saying I'm talking to Simon about seeing the woman. No, Jesus is looking at all of us right in the eye. And as he says, now, do you see? Do you see what's important? Yeah, but the Republicans and the Democrats and the Trump people and the Antifa and COVID, what about those things, Jesus? Don't, we, don't you see all this stuff? Important? Yes. But the most important thing? Jesus says, no. Does that make you mad? Makes me a little mad. Makes me a little anxious. But I know he's right. I know he's right. And as I have wanted to sink my claws, hook back up the IV to the social media news world, I hear him saying, uh-uh. it's not going anywhere. And I'm in control. Do you see? Sometimes you have to break something, cut something. And she not only sees, she hears the four most important words anyone can ever hear in this life from Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You may have thought achieving some accolade, graduating from high school, college, getting this job, getting this, whatever, this thing you always wanted, blah, blah, blah. You may be still aiming for some goal, but this passage right here tells you the four most important words you will ever hear in life. Your sins are forgiven. What became of Simon? I don't know. Doesn't tell us. It's like stops right there. No more like, and then Simon decided and he went and this, this. no, doesn't tell us. On purpose, Luke is letting it hang so that you ask the question too, so that you think. So we don't know, but what about her? Even though we don't know her name, I can almost guarantee you that she was someone who was a mover and a shaker in the movement of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the kingdom of God. I guarantee you she was out there breaking cultural norms. Listen, if she's the one who in a dinner party where nobody else will dare do this, comes forward and busts open a perfume jar to fill the whole room and takes her hair down and wiping Jesus' feet and crying, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Reminds me of David in the Old Testament. You haven't seen nothing yet. I will become even more undignified than this in my worship of God. I guarantee you she was somebody who was making things happen with her love and forgiveness that she'd received from God. Simon, we don't know. So we're going to finish. And there's three more verses I want to hit in chapter eight, because I think it goes with her. In this passage, we have a woman and a man. And Jesus flipped things upside down all the time. And so let me read those three verses and we'll finish with this and just give you something to think about. Soon afterward, Jesus left Simon's house, left the city, went to other cities and villages, doing the same thing, proclaiming, bringing the good news of the kingdom. The 12 were with him, the boys, and also some women. Remember, we've just read a story about a woman and Luke wanted you to know it was about a woman and Simon but it's clear the woman was the focus. So he, in the next three verses, says, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, don't you cry for me. And many others who provided for them 
out of their means. And that last little line can get, be a little too formal. Let's say it in our terms. They gave money to Jesus. <laughs> they gave of their own finances, their own money. They invested in Jesus. So we just had a story about an unnamed woman. And now Luke says, let me tell you the names of three amazing ladies. And I want to just say this about them because it was, it was such a good thing. We know this. If you learn uh, uh, apologetics and you want to defend the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Because people come after you and they'll tell you all the reasons why there's no way he was risen from the dead. <clears throat> one of the first arguments that they teach you is the one about the women. And here's why. If you want to fabricate a story from the first century, the last thing you do is present women who weren't allowed to testify in court even though it was stupid, but weren't allowed to testify in court as your first witnesses to this act. You don't do it. You don't say, oh, you want to know why it's true? Here are three women who weren't even allowed to be witnesses. And we're going to tell you, and they're going to be like, that's a lie. It's one of the first things you learn in defending the resurrection in an apologetics context is that this shows that this really happened. These women were really there. Why else would you put things on the line. Luke goes out of his way to say, I want you to look at these women. Look at the one that we didn't name. Look at these three. Men were the ones for sure who usually had position and title and office, but many times weren't doing the things they should be doing, especially when it came to Jesus. <clears throat> so what's he trying to say to us? And this is kind of the, the part that I just, I think is really cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. Luke is saying, brothers, take heed of your sisters. Watch them. <clears throat> I've mentioned to you guys before, there are two women in my life, my mom and my wife, who have had the most impact on who I am as a follower of Jesus. Bar none. Absolutely. I am who I am because of their impact in my life, their investment into me as a man of God. These sisters, no doubt, we're sitting here today listening to a book that has traveled across time, the kingdom of God, because they said, we get it. And here have some of our livelihood, Jesus. We will invest in the kingdom of God. We will give of our resources because we believe in this, even though it may mean our own reputations. And how do you know that? Well, Joanna, wife of Herod's, the guy who was running Herod's household, that means the message made it to the palace. That means that she had to make a decision of like, yeah, I'm leaving. I'm gonna go follow Jesus, the rabbi. Mary Magdalene there as well, Susanna. And here's what's cool. And this is kind of the, I think the place I want you to, to leave thinking about the morning of the resurrection, two of these women, Mary Magdalene and Joanna with some others, guess where they are? When all the disciples are hiding in fear, they're at the tomb. They're the first witnesses. And I think it's why Luke just says, hey, notice what's happening here in a culture where they weren't allowed to even be witnesses in court. And when they were many times pushed aside, Jesus elevated them and said, look, Simon, we don't know what he did. In fact, if anything, he didn't do the right thing. 
The woman who came in who had the worst reputation, had deep, dark sins. Everybody thought she's out, no way. She ends up being the one who gets it. She gets it. And these other women, as Luke points out, they get it. Four women in our story today just knocked it out of the park in their response to Jesus. We don't know what Simon did. What will you do? What will you do? Sometimes you have to break something. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for stories that uh, pursue us. Lord, I'm so thankful for your spirit coming after me in the last few weeks, um, going after my heart, finding those places that really were kind of held captive by fear and anxiety and the things that were happening in our world. And they are still a little bit, and I still feel your um, presence. And Lord, I, I just keep coming back to this room that Simon and the woman were in. And all eyes were on you. She knew that, he knew that. The need to respond, Lord, to the need to deal with the fact that you will put yourself in front of our lives. You will throw in that wrench. And God, I just ask for the grace and mercy today for all of us to respond to exactly what you're asking. Do we see? Do we understand? Are we motivated by your love and forgiveness? Or are we just doing the right things and behaving ourselves? God, are we able to experience what this woman obviously experienced, what those other three women obviously had experienced enough to change their whole lives, to give of themselves to you? We pray um, as we sing this song, Lord, may our lives be built on the one firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why don't we stand as we sing?